Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. 20 minutes that simplifies the complex job of managing and leading people and inspires you to take action on what you probably already know to build and sustain a smart and healthy business. Here's your host, Ed Epley, to introduce this week's guest and business leader. Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. It's another chance for you to take away in less than 30 minutes an idea, hopefully at least one, and hopefully uh, even adding to that two or three that will help you run that more successful and sustainable business. Our guest today, he's an entrepreneur, but I don't know that he started out thinking of himself that way. He's very humble. He's highly self-aware. I don't know if he'll agree with that, but I think he is. And then the last thing is that in my experience, I've seen a lot of CFOs who happen to be accounting people who were in business, but this happens to be a business person who happens to be in accounting. And there's a big, big difference. And we'll talk a little bit about that as the day goes on, as the time we have with him unwinds. His name is Brad Martin. He's the CEO of Focus CFO. And Brad, welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. Ed, it's great to be here. I really appreciate you having me on today. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. We've we've worked together, but we haven't really talk that much about each other. And so I'm, I'm expecting to learn quite a bit about you today. And I did, I already learned some stuff doing my homework for today, but let's, let's make the uh, audience, let's give them context. Who and what is Focus CFO? Ed, at our core, we're really passionate about helping entrepreneurs and business owners achieve their personal and financial goals. And, and we do that by providing what's known as fractional CFO services to small and lower middle market businesses. And most of the clients that we work with are in the two to 20 or two to $30 million revenue space. They've got five to hundred employees. A lot of our clients are two to six or two to 8 million in revenue when we start and they've never had a CFO before and never really had the chance to understand what one does. So when they end up working with you, is it out of desperation or is it out of frustration or is it out of optimism in most cases? Well, there's always something going on. Yeah. There's always something happening. And a lot of the businesses we work with are going through a growth cycle and things are getting overwhelming. We do work with businesses that we're introduced to that are falling on hard times. But most of the entrepreneurs that we work with have a really good business model and a really good outlook on things that are just looking for someone to help with some of the heavy lifting on the finance side. And and so do you get referred in or is it more uh, through marketing and, and uh, branding efforts that people reach out to you because they happen to know of you? It's a great question. I would say 99% of our clients are referred to us by one of their trusted advisors. Okay. And the, the, you know, the challenge, the issue the industry faces, the fractional CFO industry is it's so new and most of the, the individuals in our target market have never had a CFO before. So they wake up with these problems and they really don't know what the solution is. And if, yeah. they're, if they're really lucky, they've got a trusted advisor that takes an interest in their business and, and points them to people that can help. So in my head, I'm guessing uh, from our conversations that there are around 50 or so people who are providing this fractional service. Is that is that a good estimate on my part? 
inside of our team yeah, or yeah in, in your organization yeah we've got we've got right now we've got about 70 total CFOs and then we have 30 people that are involved in business development and okay. relationship building. okay and and when you started I don't know that the scale or size that you've gotten to was ever in in the back of your mind that you would get this big am I right on that yeah you're dead on I look when I started it was just gonna be me and a couple of my buddies and we were gonna go out and get six or seven businesses and just work with them. We knew there was a market out there. We, I didn't really know how to find it or, or address it, but we knew there was a market and it was never going to be anything like this. <laughs> kind of like the dog that catches the bus. <laughs> we just went along for the ride. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a wonderful problem that you created for yourself. And we'll talk a little bit more about the scaling and the changes that you've gone through to accommodate that. But I want to come back to more about you and your development as a leader and as an entrepreneur. I was looking at your uh, history of, of where you've been and where, you know, what's your what your journey has been. And I saw that you were at OHM and I, I think they were around Findlay as was was. Was that, am I right? They're Northwest That's right, Ohio? yeah, ba based in Findlay. Yes. Yeah, and they were doing environmental cleanup? Exactly, yeah. It was originally a construction company that got into, uh, it was originally, it was called Kirk Brothers, and they got into environmental kind of accidentally and, and rode the wave of Superfund through the 80s and 90s. Yeah, we, we often talk with clients about the next new product or service will be nuisance revenue. It's, it's stuff that shows up in your revenue that you really didn't build the business to do, but somebody asked you to do it. You said, ah, okay, we'll do it. And next thing you know, it, it's there, but it's really not the core business. And then you you, you, you say, well, we shouldn't really be in this business. Where should we should focus? And and so you raise your prices to get rid of it and the customers keep paying it. And <laughs> next thing you know, it is a business. It's a real business at that point. Yeah. 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 And so how long were you there with OHM? I was at OHM for 10 years. Okay. And then and then you went to MPW. And I think that's Mobile Power Wash was the initial, what the company stood for. I may be wrong about that, but out in Heath, Ohio. Is in Hebron. Yeah. Hebron. East of Columbus. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 so what was your what was your move about? Was it a career opportunity to go higher in the organization, or was help me understand that that you stayed in the industry? Well, when OHM was probably seventy five million when I started and had gone public, and we grew it to five hundred million dollars, and you know the first half of that was all organic, and it was an incredible ride. They just got it was bigger than what I wanted to do at that point, so I decided to to go to MPW where the president of the company was actually a good friend of mine. Okay. And and MPW was probably doing 60 million when I got there, just a privately held Main Street company in 1995. And then it grew to 200 million, went public, 17, 18 acquisitions in 24 months. That was where I really oh, wow. caught the entrepreneurial bug. Wow. Man alive, that's drinking from the fire hose on so many different levels. Yeah, it was pretty intense. I don't, I don't, uh, I mean, I was on an airplane for three years all over the country. Just, we're just, we're just putting deals together and finding things that were complementary to our client base. We were doing a lot of you know, acquisitions to cross sell and things like that. So it, it was really successful. Now, a lot of your customers at Focus CFO don't have good exit strategies if they have any. I'm guessing in those acquisitions, those roll-ups you did at MPW, that you saw a lot firsthand of why they ended up selling was because they didn't have exit strategies and MPW was a way for them to to get some equity out of their business. Am I right or not? 
you're dead on. Most of those businesses were two to $15 million. It was still the first generation entrepreneur. And we, most of them weren't for sale. We actually identified a need in the market and we went after them and we began discussions. It's real interesting because I got to know a lot of those entrepreneurs really well. And yeah. I worked with them on the due diligence side and I worked with them on the integration side. And look, their businesses were getting hard. Yeah. And things were just complicated for them. And a lot of it was financial. The, the, bank, the banking was tough. They didn't have good information. They were relying on a controller for the most part, which was very historical oriented. And I actually, you know, we, we really tried to talk a lot of these guys out of the deals because they were coming from an entrepreneurial culture into a public company. And we told them, I told them, I said, we're going to kill your culture. Yes. But a lot of them said, oh, you know, I always wanted to work for a big company and wanted to work for a public company. And then I remember one of the guys came to me about a year after, after the deal. And he said, uh, he said, you know, I just wish I'd never done it. And oh, yeah. you guys paid me a lot of money. He said, but if he, what he said was, he said, if I could have worked with someone like you, I wouldn't have sold. And it wasn't me, Brad Martin. It was just what a CFO brought to the table in terms of taking some of the things that he really wasn't equipped to do and handling them. So that's you know, so the seeds of focus were really planted there. I think you're underselling your qualities as a person when you say that. I appreciate that you're saying he didn't know, you know, he he got a chance to work with a CFO who who really contributed what a CFO should contribute. But you're a good human being too. So I don't don't sell yourself too short there, Brad. Um before I leave your career, I just want to talk about uh, JE Grody company because that's a big jump going from uh environmental services to pepperoni slicers. <laughs> <laughs> well when I left MPW, MPW got to two hundred million and you know, we had gone public and yeah. this is, you know, this is during the late nineties when everything is high tech. And a lot of us tried to talk the CEO out of going public, but we went public. He wanted to go. Um, and after a few years, he didn't like being public. So he decided to go private. And that was really when I decided to leave because I wasn't interested in tearing down what we left. Yeah, and, right. Right. And met uh, Jim Grody and the team over there and, and went to Grody, not so much to be involved in the manufacturing. Cause I wasn't, I was only there less than a year, but we put together a real nice strategic acquisition plan for Grody. I was really good with the transactions. We mapped all that out. But Grody was interesting because you go from you know a couple hundred million dollar companies into a twenty million dollar company as a CFO, and we had a really strong controller. Oh yeah. And so I'm thinking, I can probably do this job in like a day a week. <laughs> so if you take what I learned working with the entrepreneurs and what I learned at Grody, that's where I really just jumped off the cliff and decided to to go out and and try to put something together to service the lower middle market business well, owners. Well, the, that takes me to my next question. So is it harder to make a small company big or is it harder to keep a big company from be calling, be, becoming either smaller or bought out? What, oh, which, oh, which is harder? That's a great question. I think it's, I think there's two things. I think it depends on the leadership of the, the CEO. It depends on that. And I think it depends on, what's going on in the industry, especially for large companies. So the, you know, the bigger companies where it's very competitive, there's a lot of industry dynamics that make it hard to stay big. But I'll yeah. tell you, I, I think it circles back to, it's harder to make a small company big because the founder usually doesn't surround themselves with the right people. And most entrepreneurs aren't wired to run a big company. They don't like the structure. They don't like the process. They don't like the things that are needed to build a platform for scalable growth. Well, I'm I'm going to change tax here a little bit because of what you just said. So if if I 
if I extend the thought that you just offered up that entrepreneurs sometimes get in the way of the growth of their organization and the potential success of the organization, and I think about your organization's growth and development, I said that you're highly self-aware. And and one of the reasons I say that is you've brought people on board to support you and, and actually I view you've gotten to a place now where you don't run the day-to-day aspects of the business. You've brought in somebody to do that for you, correct? Correct. That process started a couple of years ago. And I remember it was about three years ago and we were doing three and a half million of revenue or whatever. And you're building a service business to three and a half million is a lot different than building a yeah. product-based business. Right. And so I remember standing up in front of our team and saying, look, I just can't do this by myself anymore. And we had probably 40 people at the time and we put together an executive team and I started to bring people in. And and then that that led to a process where we actually implemented EOS and we, we put that process in place. And about 15 months ago, we actually hired someone, brought, brought an individual in to actually run the day-to-day in the business. And I really just do whatever I want anymore. And I look down and I kind of see the things that he's doing and they're, they're great. They're things I probably wouldn't have thought of or wouldn't have done. And we've just been able to really triple the size of the company. So yeah, I, process. I think back to Clay Mattel at Aileron and the owner, uh, former owner of Imes Pet Foods. And my audience has heard me say this before, just because you own the business doesn't mean you're the right person to run it. And that's certainly true for almost every entrepreneur or business owner out there, there's a size and scale of the business that exceeds either what the business owner or entrepreneur wants or is capable of. And and if you don't recognize that and understand that, you'll often not only stunt the growth, you'll kill the business. Well, I think back to my days at OHM and then MPW, and they were running that structure because in both of those cases, the entrepreneurs were still very involved in the business 20 yeah. years after they had started. But they had brought in professional management to actually run the company. And both of these individuals, Jim and Monty, the entrepreneurs, got up every day and did what they were really good at. And they didn't worry about the day-to-day running of the company. And they weren't wired. And those businesses grew exponentially because they were able to free up the entrepreneur to focus on the things they were good at, but bring in the professional leadership to build the platform for scalable growth. Do you think entrepreneurs are born or made? Well, I think there's a there's a certain wiring that exists within entrepreneurs. I don't think anyone can be an entrepreneur. I think there's certain characteristics that people that are innate and they're and they're that they're born with, but different people do it different ways. And my my path is just so different because I spent the first 18 years of my career in the corporate world and then yeah. jumped off the cliff when I was 40. Yeah. And that's, that's, what I was that's thinking pretty of. rare. Yeah. That's pretty rare. But yeah. Well, part of the reason I asked the question is because I'm guessing if I had talked to you when you were 35, 38, and if I said, are you an entrepreneur? I bet you would have said no. I would have said no, but I actually love to hang around with them. And I would look, I was the finance guy that I spent all my time with the salespeople and the marketing people. And I spent all my time with the you know, in the acquisitions with these entrepreneurs. And I just love that concept of how do you grow the business? And I, look, I got weary of the finance people that thought that they were the most important people in the company and loved to spend time with the people who actually were the most important 
people in the company. <laughs> I told you, audience, he's a businessman who happens to be a CFO. He's not a CFO who happens to be in business. Uh, that that does make you unique. So let's let's try to offer some guidance to our uh, audience, some 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 rules, if you will. So if I'm going to hire a CFO, does what I look for matter if I'm 10 million versus if I'm 100 million? Well, I think it certainly does. I mean, the $10 million company is, is still going to be highly entrepreneurial. Okay. And so when you bring that, that CFO in, that CFO is going to have to be able to adapt to that style. They're going to have to have a personality and, and a way of understanding how the entrepreneur thinks. But at the same time, they're going to, I'd, I'd like to say that they, they don't push, they pull. Interesting. So in the smaller, in the smaller company, I think you're doing a lot of, suggesting to the entrepreneur, have you ever thought about this? Has anybody showed you how to do this? What do you say we try this? In the larger company, I always say that the CFOs are more trained killers because (laughs) they're working for, look, they're working for professional management and that professional management expects them to come in and take charge and just get things done. So it's more of a push inside those larger organizations. I'm thinking of of a stronger uh, adjective than push. If if I'm a trained killer, it's it's, (laughs) resistance is futile. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Just get out of my way and let me get it done. But look, entrepreneurs, most of the, and we, we deal with this inside of my business because a lot of the decisions that I made early on, they, they were good at the time. They were the best decisions I could make, but today they don't work. But if somebody comes to me and says, that's a really bad idea, we're going to change it. I'm going to get defensive. But if somebody will coach me through that and help me understand it and I earn, and they earn my trust. Oh, yeah. But that doesn't happen on day one. Is it safe to say then uh, the smaller company, you should look at your CFO as as part consultant? Part consultant, part yeah. teacher, part yeah. friend, yeah. Uh, part mentor, all those things. Now, the yeah. technical ability is going to be there. Yeah. But you know, high EQ and any look, the CFOs that we bring on as part of our team, because we're working with mostly with first generation entrepreneurs, we're looking for people that have high emotional intelligence, that have the people skills that they can come in and really adapt and work in different environments and, and just help coach people up, help them understand. A lot of our clients, when we start, nobody's ever taken the time to help them understand how to read financial statements. Right. Right. So we're working with them kind of at that level. And we love to be teachers. And we describe ourselves a lot of times as Sherpas. Yeah. We're really the guide that's been there before that helps people climb the mountain to build value in your business. And we're going to carry the pack and we're going to show you the way, but you're going to be right there with us. When do when as a business would I know that I need more than a controller? What's the and, and I'm thinking of a company that's a million, two million dollars, and they they've they've added a person who's functioning as a controller, whether they call them that or not. And and when do I know I need more than that? What's the what's the symptoms or the situations that are going on where I would recognize I either need to add a CFO or I need to talk to Brad at Focus CFO and get some fractional help. Well, the control and titles are meaningless in all this. So right, you know, we right. see people that make $40,000 that are office managers called CFOs, and they're great people, but their role is more traditional office. The, the controller role, if you think about what the business owner is, is looking at and seeing, when they have a controller, they're seeing, they should be seeing really good historical information. But I don't know too many business owners that get up in the morning and say, gosh, how did I do last year? 
how did I do last month? They're thinking about what the future. And so we, we really describe the CFO role as someone that will work with the business owner to, to put numbers around strategy and it's very forward looking. So if I'm a business owner and I've got, I've kind of got a plan how I'm going to run the business going forward, but I don't have a financial roadmap for that. That's certainly an indication that you need somebody to help you put that together. Because I, I mean, I've personally been involved with listening to business owners talk about what their growth plans were in the future and said, let's go model this. We come back and model it and you can't cash flow it. Right. Because this is, ne- it, look, it's never about sales and it's never about income. It's about gross margin and cash flow. And so a lot of times, really good business plans go off the rails because they're executing a plan that they can't fund. And we always talk about the fact that cash comes from three places. It comes from the business generating cash, it comes from a bank lending cash, and it comes from equity being put inside the business. And look, equity is hard to find. It's not always friendly. The banks will only lend so much. So sometimes you have to actually dial back the growth to make sure that the business can actually throw off enough cash flow to actually support what it is you're trying to do, or you're just gonna run out of money. Yeah. And you need to know where those pinch points are well in advance of when they happen. What do you think about peer groups for business owners and operators as a way to understand the way the company you know, truly makes and loses money relative to others, to, to have something to compare themselves against? Do you think it helps or hurts? We're a huge advocate fan of Vistage and EO and those places, any type of peer group like that, because... They tend to be safe environments where you can build friendships and you're dealing with people that have been there and done it. People aren't going to be judgmental. They're going to offer advice. And so a lot of really great ideas come from those groups. And the practical reality, especially in the smaller businesses, the under $10 million business, is they're so heads down in the business. <laughs> yeah. They don't have anybody. Yeah, they, they don't have anybody, Ed, that they can really bounce ideas off of and you know, I've always said if they're really lucky, if that entrepreneur is really lucky, if one of their key three advisors, we call them the ABCs, the attorney, banker, and CPA, if one of them takes enough of an interest in the business that they can be there and be a sounding board and say, have you ever thought about getting involved in EO or Vistage or one of these peer, going to Aileron? Right. Because the business owner doesn't know about them. Right. Somebody needs to introduce them to the business owner. So we're big advocates of continuous learning and exposure and all of that. Um, I'm thinking about the the typical fractional CFO that's part of your stable of talent. Are, are there, besides emotional intelligence, so that they can be empathetic and and know when to push versus pull using your your verbiage, your language, are there certain other characteristics or qualities that you you see as highly critical to them being able to add the value that you want? Yeah, great question. All the CFOs that we bring on have at least 25, 20, 25 years of experience actually working in industry okay. as CFOs. We're not approaching it. We're not really interested in people that have come through public accounting, although a lot of us have. Some of those service industries do more working of for industry. We're working in industry. So you have to have been there. You have to done it. You have to walk the plant floor. You have to walk the job site. You have to be able to be able to present to a board and also talk to the production guy on the floor. So we're looking for that level of experience. The technical skills have to be there. You have to be able to think both tactically and strategically about the business. And the, you know, the other thing that we do is 
we, we actually have two people involved with every client. So we're going to have a CFO that's involved. We're also going to have someone like me that's a, an entrepreneur, and we call them area presidents. They're involved sometimes from a strategic side because a lot of us have actually done something a CFO may not have done, which has started a business and grown it from scratch. Right. And, and gotten to a point where that you exit. So we're, we operate on a recurring schedule where I would say we're like NetJets. So the CFO is going to come to this client on Monday and this one on Tuesday and this one on Wednesday. We get in a regular schedule. We're involved in the management meetings. We're bringing some leadership principles to the table and really helping get inside the owner's head and figure out, you know, is the investment right for them at the time? And then at some point, I assume the business in in many cases becomes successful enough that they need a full-time CFO and they would make that transition. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's a great point. In the beginning, I thought every one of our clients would outgrow us. Yeah. That's just what I thought is we'd work there for two or three years. We have a lot of clients because we're so strategic and we have such understanding of their industry and their business. When they get bigger, they actually bring somebody in. They might even bring in a CFO or a really strong person. Right. And we stay involved from a mentorship and advisory standpoint as well. So we have a lot of those engagements as well. But, you know, you bring up the size issue. I've always talked to people about, let's just say 30 million is a size that a business might, it's industry dependent, yeah, but let's right, say 30 right. million is the size that somebody would bring on a, a full-time real true CFO. What does that mean? At 28 million, they didn't need any CFO support. At 25 million, they didn't need any at 20. And so our model really exists so that people can get that support as they go from 5 million to 30, yep. which will actually help catapult them to further growth. Well, and I've often said when people add a COO or a CFO, a CMO, any of those really high powered positions, even an operating officer, um, my experience is that when organizations have never had that role before, it's a bit of a stretch. It's a bit of a, a challenge. And so I've often thought if I could contract temporarily six to 12 months to see what it feels like to add that kind of position to our structure, I'm going to learn a lot. One, do I really want it? Number two, there's what I think I need in a person versus what I find out I actually need. So to me, being able to ease our way into it with a contracted resource like you would really be helpful to, to not making mistakes that I would regret later on and, and may be hard to get out of. Well, it's a great point because it's, look, it's risky to bring in someone, particularly someone that you don't know yeah. and you don't really understand what they do yeah. and make sure that you as an individual, as an organization are ready for it. So I agree with you completely. And you know, the other thing that I always think about is when people are looking to add that resource, what's the best way to do it? Whether it's bringing in someone like you or someone like us, and it's just it's it's always nice to be able to have that peer group that you can talk to and people can say or or a trusted advisor and they can refer you to someone that they know and you get a chance to to dance with them first. I know we're kind of pushing our time limit, but I feel compelled to ask this because you've had a seat through the pandemic to watch the impact of PPP money that a lot of organizations only know what they've experienced it, but you've seen the impact on a very large number of organizations. So in, in hindsight, do you, do you think it was a good program for the government to have embarked on? Well, I think it saved a lot of businesses for sure. I would guess we, we actually track this, the numbers between 65 and 70% of our clients were actually eligible for PPP. And 
knowing some of them and their situation, they wouldn't have gotten through this. So in that regard, it was a good thing. Yeah. Okay. When the government said you have to shut down because these were these were non-essentials. When the government said you have to shut down, they were they were done if it weren't for this. Do you think government should do more? Well, I think there's certain industries that we have to be, if we want to keep them around, I just think about restaurants. I'm not sure how the restaurants are going to survive. Right. Um, so I'm not a big government handout person, but I do think in certain cases, there there are situations where that for the good of the economy and the good of the, the people, we the government needs to figure out how to be more of a resource. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm fortunate. I, my clients cover a lot of geography and I know out in Colorado, there's certain areas where up until two weeks ago, the restaurants had at most 10% occupancy and very few can stay in business with that kind of reduction. And, you know, they, they can't get by on carry out alone. So Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, they've done a lot of great things to reinvent their businesses. There's going to be some things that come out of this. I'm always surprised when you go through things like this at who the winners and losers are. Yeah. And uh, gosh, my wife and I ordered new family room furniture a couple of weeks ago, and it's a 24-week lead time because they're so slammed. And I wanted somebody to work on my patio, and he couldn't even schedule me till next year. He's already sold out this year. So there are winners and there are losers for sure. Boomer tomb, baby. That's how that's how I've described it. You're you're one or the other in a lot of cases. Um, all right. Well, let's get to the the essence. I, I make our listeners have to listen to 30 minutes before they get the the payoff that's promised, which is that one idea that you believe is absolutely most critical to an organization being more successful or sustainable. So if I'm somebody listening, what's that one thing for you, Brad, that you think is indispensable that, that if they can only do one thing, what would that be to be more successful? To understand what you're good at and what you're not and to focus on what you're good at. Surround yourself with people who are smarter than you are. And you as a particularly a business owner have to focus on the the one thing that you can do best to help the business. And too many business owners get trapped into, into doing things that are, you know, they can hire somebody and pay them 20 bucks an hour and have them do it. But they're doing all those things and their their value to the organization is so great when they're doing the things that really add value. His name is Brad Martin. He spells it a little bit differently. And I'm going to ask you to elaborate on that, Brad, if you would, so that if people want to reach out to you, that they, they know the best way to contact you. Would you please do that for us? My, uh, my email address is b.martin, M-A-R-T-Y-N, at focuscfo.com. You can find me on our website at focuscfo.com. I should have asked that at the beginning. How many Martins spelled with a Y-N are there? I have never seen the spelling before you and I met. There aren't very many, and I, I've always I joke that it's a curse because I've had to I've had to spell my whole life. I've had to listen to people say M A R T Y N. So yeah, that's what it is. So it, it sounds almost like a Monty Python skit where they spell Smith S M I S M Y T H. It's the same. Yeah. All right, uh, Brad. Thank you so much for spending some time with me and our audience today. I, my guess is that that people are going to want to know more about what you and Focus CFO does. You're certainly a a trusted advisor to me and I really appreciate you being with us here on the Ed Epley Experience. Ed, we appreciate all the support you've given us too and consider you a great friend and appreciate what you do as well. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ed Epley Experience. For more information on building a more sustainable, smarter and healthier business, 
Visit www.theepleygroup.com for resources, tips, and Ed's latest blogs. That's theepleygroup.com. Plus, take a free assessment at theepleygroup.com slash assessment to find out how you measure up as a highly skilled and accomplished manager and where to focus on improving your skills. 